Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 7, Woe to you, or woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. In highly metaphorical language, Jesus is going to issue a series of warnings. But don't be confused and don't be deceived. There's nothing metaphorical about the warnings themselves. Some people toy with the idea that sin may not be as bad as we first thought. Or that sin isn't as bad as the Bible claims. Or the consequences aren't as harsh or horrific as the Bible describes. It was Charles Spurgeon who called on his students when they were addressing this particular subject. He said, when you speak of heaven, your face should shine as the sun. And when you speak of hell, your regular face will do. Jesus is calling on his disciples To avoid offense in verse 7. Control what you do in verses 7 and 8. Take charge of what you see in verse 9. I almost feel like I should be on television and say, Caution! You're about to enter the no-sin zone. But that would be kind of cheesy. But I did it anyway. In verse 6... In order to provide some context, remember Jesus has already said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better, not worse, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's the context. The context is greatness in the kingdom. And Jesus is going to illustrate the issue of greatness in the kingdom by using a little child. When we honor the child, we honor the Savior. When we hurt the child, when we damage the child, when we sin against the child, we hurt the Savior. We sin against the Savior. Jesus speaks of the penalty in verse 6 of hurting the child. He talks about the heavenly protection assigned to the child in verse 10. A detail of spirit beings are tasked 
with the child's welfare and report directly to heaven in verse 10. In in verse 6, Jesus issues a warning. Again, he says, in effect, it's better to face the prospects of a violent death here and now than to face the punishment in the next life for setting a young believer down a path of destruction. In verse 7, it says, woe to the world because of offenses. And woe is a word of cursing and condemnation. In the Bible, it doesn't mean like Southern California, whoa. It, is, it doesn't mean, oh, that's amazing, or, or wait, or hold up just a second. That's not the meaning of the word. Here, it means a curse for those who have, are making a determined effort to lead people astray. And so Jesus reminds us that the world is under a curse, not only for its commitment to sin, but because of its blatant disregard for the reality of sin and the solution to sin. You are living in a world that wants to call sin a mistake or a difficulty. You're living in a world where even some people aren't even willing to believe that it even exists. Jesus condemns this world as a source of offense and misdirection. The the verb that he uses, woe to the world because of offense, that word offense takes two forms in this passage with, with, with almost the same meaning. It's scandalizo, which can mean Not just simply an offense. It means way more than an offense. It means to cause, to stumble, or to cause to sin. And that's the other word, scandalon, which means a temptation to sin. So he's going to point out two different ideas. A solicitation to sin and also the actual invitation that results in sin. And so Jesus is going to condemn this world as the source of offense, and then he's also going to issue a proclamation of condemnation for people who solicit others to sin. But for the believer, for the Christian, for the person who knows and loves Jesus, you should write a little note next to this particular passage. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation is the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes committed. In Jesus, you've been exonerated. You have a not guilty. So back to the text, How does the world cause people to sin? Now, again, if you're a person who's just now joining a CSD group and you're going to be starting to get together, this is going to give you an opportunity to talk about some of these important issues. And so one of the things that I want to point out to you is that one of the ways that the world causes people to sin is by saying something. The world will tell lies. 
it will not only tell you lies, but it will offer you an invitation to believe the lie. And of course, Augustine, the great church father, said, sin is believing the lie that you are self-created, self-dependent, self-sustained. I think he got it right, even hundreds, even over a thousand years ago. You live in a world that suggests that somehow you just got here and that you're not accountable or responsible to anyone other than yourself. It was Martin Luther who said, sin is essentially a departure from God. And that's exactly right. Sin isn't just simply doing something wrong, and it isn't simply thinking something that's wrong. It is a lifestyle that is evidenced by an unwillingness to embrace what the Bible says about sin, what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about the solution to the problem of sin. So how are we in danger Well, the Bible says that the source can come from fellowship in verse 6. That means believers can sometimes let other believers down. From the world in verse 7. From the sinful nature inside of us in verses 8 and 9. So Jesus pronounces two woes. One for the, the world and the other, look what it says, to that man by whom the offense comes. Again, here... The world means not the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above. You know the rest. And a thing called love. No, that's not the world we're talking about. It's the world that stands in opposition to God. It's the world of unbelief. That's the world that he's talking about. I'm going to suggest to you that the world almost certainly in this context is a reference to the religious leaders who have set their sights on destroying Jesus. But they're not going to be content to simply hurt Jesus or crush Jesus. They are going to want to crush the Jesus followers. They're going to want to find out who is following him and make sure that that doesn't last. The world can best be described as that system of beliefs that stands in opposition to God. It stands in opposition to the revelation of Christ, but the system provides no excuse for individuals who make their own contribution. In other words, Jesus will address the issue of the person who simply cries out, I'm only human. Well, guess what? Being a human isn't a good enough reason to hurt people or to cause them to sin. And the point that Jesus is making is that you'll be held accountable. So the whole world is under judgment for sin. Each individual will receive judgment for sin. And if you're wondering, does that include me? The answer is yes. Your sin will be dealt with. It will be dealt with by Jesus. And it will be dealt with either as your savior or your judge. And he is your savior. Or he is your judge. He will be one. 
or the other. So, for the unbeliever, if we were to ask and answer the question, well, what does the unbeliever have to do? What does the make-believer have to do to go to hell? The answer, nothing. Not a thing. For the unbeliever and the make-believer, all you have to do is just continue down the path that you've already chosen, never receiving Christ, never accepting him as your savior. You just can continue to live your life the way that you've been living it in rebellion and disobedience, walking away from God, walking away from his love, walking away from his forgiveness, walking away from the promises. All you have to do is to just simply do what you've always done. For the believer, all you have to do is remember that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins to remove the penalty of sin. He's died on the cross and he is removing the power of sin in your life. And Jesus has died on the cross and one day you will be removed from the very presence of sin. So the responsibility for all of us is to point people in the right direction, to lead people away from sin, and then to point them in the direction of righteousness. And you would be making a mistake if you think it's simply my job. What's your job, preacher? You're the pastor. You're the preacher. It's your job to point people and say, this is sin, don't do it, and walk away from it. But I've got to tell you something. According to the Bible... The direction of righteousness falls on government and organizations and churches and institutions and individuals. We are all collectively called on in the Bible to promote righteousness, to resist evil and sin. That might come as a shock and as a surprise to you. And so governments and churches have no right, no right, no right to call on people to sin or encourage them to sin. And when the government asks us to sin, our answer is no. And when they encourage us to sin, the answer is still no. And it has to be the same when the church asks you to sin or encourages you to sin, or the pastor asks you to sin, or encourages you to sin, Jesus makes it clear there's no excuse. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. So we have to be very, very careful not to tempt people to sin or cause people to sin. And some of you might be thinking at this very moment, well, doesn't the Bible say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses and forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation. And when we're praying, aren't we asking God to not lead us into temptation? And the, the right answer is, that's a test. God never ever, ever, ever solicits human beings to sin, not even once, never. Sometimes there's tests that you have to endure 
and you'll do fine on the test, or you won't. But the test becomes a revelation of who you really are and what you really want. So the most obvious way to cause a person to stumble is to invite them to sin. And so guess what? That's the devil's job. It's not your job. Just in case you were wondering, none of you, none of you, none of you are called on to tempt people, to test them, or to solicit them to sin. And again, that might mean that there's a certain book that you're reading or a certain movie that you're watching or a certain internet site that you're visiting that you need to stop going to. It, it might mean that you're encouraging gossip. Eve is the classic example of solicitation. After she disobeyed God, she gave her husband the fruit and encouraged rebellion against God. Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, agreed to the sinful demands to fabricate an idol. And you might be thinking, well, I don't get it. Um, how is this even possible? And how can it be such a big problem? But remember, remember, remember that it is sin that creates these problems. We wouldn't hesitate to protect our children from physical harm. But what about spiritual harm? What about the explicit images, the videos, the movies, the products with occult or demonic themes? We could go on and on, but we can also cause each other to sin indirectly. Fathers are commanded not to provoke their children to anger, but we can provoke them by making unrealistic demands or expectations or insisting on achievements or being hypercritical or overprotective or overpermissive. The list could go on and on. Another way we can cause people to stumble is through sinful example. Without saying a word, believers can be led into sinful attitudes and practices by watching the bad example of others. So we as parents have to be very, very careful. Our children are watching us. They're copying our behavior. I read the story of a man who was given to drunkenness and he stole out, out of the middle of the night into the winter and he, he was going to go to his favorite bar and, and he, he started walking away. But then all of a sudden he heard the gentle crunching and the sounds of the snow being softly stepped upon and he turned around and he saw his five-year-old son just a few yards behind him and when he asked the boy when he said what are you doing the boy said I'm following in your footsteps according to the story the guy never drank ever again it was a sufficient motivation for him to wake up. And is there a sufficient motivation in your heart that there's certain things that you don't want your children to have to suffer? And so there's not only a caution 
to avoid offending. Look, there's a caution about what you can do in verse 8. Look what it says. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands and two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. Jesus is using hyperbole. For those of you who don't know what hyperbole is, it's exaggerating a point in order to make a point. Jesus isn't literally suggesting that you cut off your hand or cut off your feet, even though some people have tragically interpreted it that way. By the way, let's just for purposes of discussion, literalize it just for a moment. What if it does mean self-mutilation? If you cut off your left hand, is your right hand still available to sin? If you cut off both feet, could you still find a way to sin? By the way, if you gouge out your eyes, does this mean that blind people are incapable of sin? And then we begin to understand that sin isn't in your left hand or your right hand or your left foot or your right foot. Sin is in your heart. And I'm not talking about the physical organ that pumps blood and supplies oxygen to your brain. I'm talking about that inner you. Jesus means that word erratically, dramatically, fundamentally, unequivocally, unceremoniously cut sin out of our life. Jesus invites the disciples to surgically cut out sin in their life or anything that would cause them to abandon their faith or abandon their trust in God or in Christ. We know the temptation to sin comes from several different sources. The Bible says we live in a broken and a fallen world. We understand that. We understand that there's a real Satan who hates us. We understand that there is something inside of us that's bent, twisted towards walking away from the things of God. Earlier, earlier in the passage, Jesus took a child and reminded the disciples that the greatest in the kingdom was the person with childlike faith, childlike humility, childlike trust. So we know that the hands can become the things that we use to handle sin and that our feet become the instruments whereby we pursue sin. But the truly humble person wants to build people up, not tear them down. And the humble person wants to be a stepping stone towards Christ, not a stumbling stone. We're to build bridges. Our lives, our speech, our conversation, we are to build bridges so that people can make it safely to Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, again, he's already said in, in chapter 5, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. There, Jesus is dealing harshly with the issue of lust. Here, Jesus is dealing harshly with the issue of pride. Pride prevents humility. People have read this passage and falsely thought, okay, my hand's the problem. My feet are the problem. If I didn't have hands or feet, I wouldn't have a problem. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. Again, this isn't about severing body parts. This is about severing yourself from sin. And that's the point. Cutting off limbs can never change the spiritual condition of the human heart. Jesus is in effect saying, nothing, 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 nothing is worse. Nothing is worth it. Nothing is worse than missing out on eternal life. Nothing is worth missing eternal friendship with God and fellowship with God. Nothing, nothing is worth risking eternity in hell. There's no sacrifice too great in this life if it means avoiding the wrath of God and the punishment of God for the just deserts of sin. It was J. Vernon McGee who said, my friends, my friends, there's only one thing worse than going to hell. He says, that's holding the hand of your son or your daughter while you're going to hell. Oh yeah, there is something worse. There's something way worse than you going to hell. It's giving your children excuse and permission And so look at verse 9. Caution, he says, control what you see. Look what it says. But some of you don't believe me. In verse 9, look what it says. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Fire. It's interesting to me that no matter how much I preach on this, there are going to be people who won't, they, they don't believe it, not even for a minute. They don't believe that there is such a thing as hell. They want desperately to believe in heaven, but they can't bring themselves to believe in hell. They'll say, you mean God would punish someone forever for something that just happens in the course of a lifetime let me ask you a question how many minutes does it take to pull the trigger and by the way if it only takes a few seconds to kill someone is it a just or right punishment that that person spend the rest of their life in jail let me just put it you to a little bit differently is it possible that you can do something and it only lasts for just a few seconds but it can result in a lifetime of punishment You know that that's true. In brief, hell is described as a place of unquenchable fire in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, Matthew chapter 13, verse 41 and 42, Mark chapter 9, verse 43. In verse 8, Jesus uses the term everlasting fire. In Luke 16, it's described as a place of memory and remorse. It's a place of unending thirst in Luke 16, 24. It's a place of misery and pain in Revelation 14, 10. It's a place of frustration and anger, Mark 13, 42. It's a place of eternal separation, Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. And by the way, let's just for purposes of discussion say it is a metaphor. Well, if it is, then it's something way worse. It's way worse than this. 
the Bible describes this place as a place of punishment where the recipient receives undiluted divine wrath in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2 Revelation chapter 14 verse 10 according to Matthew 25 41 it was originally made for the devil and his angels now you might be wondering how is that even possible because guess what when God created Lucifer and when he created the angels he didn't create them with the purpose of killing them or annihilating them or causing them to to cease and to exist do you realize that when angelic hosts battle with one another no one ever dies one gets the upper hand one is in a superior position the other is an inferior position when there's a battle in heaven, it isn't one good angel destroying another one because the angels were meant to live forever, and so were you. Think about it for just a moment. If there really is no hell, then there's probably no devil, and if there really is no devil, then there probably is no sin, and if there is no sin, there's really no need for a savior. The sad and disturbing news is that it will exist always in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Matthew 25, 46, Jude 7. A lot of sin goes unnoticed, but God notices everything. There's nothing that escapes his gaze. And a low view of sin will always result in a low view of hell. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, we have this strange illusion that mere time cancels the debt of sin. That if we can just simply distance ourselves from what we have done, then the punishment will go away. But it's not true. And so Jesus says in verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, again, remember the context. They've asked about who is greatest. He has brought forth a child. He said, don't hurt the children. And again, some people believe that heaven is a metaphor. But Jesus believed that heaven was a real place. He called it my father's house in John 14 too. Jesus believed that there were spirit beings, angels in heaven who see, read witness, the face of his father who is in heaven. In the ancient world, it was believed that invisible guardians protected people. When Jesus says their angels always see the face of my father, it means that even though you're looking at this child and you think that they're nobody special. Jesus is saying, there's somebody special. You might look at a particular person or a particular issue or a particular event and you might think that they're not worth anything or next to nothing. In ancient times, the most important people had direct access to the king. You can imagine, even in our own culture, if a person said, I can pick up the phone right now and call the president of the United States. Or I can pick up the phone and call this person or that person. By the way, I can no longer do that. 
as a formerly famous person, I am just, now I'm nobody. I can't even begin to tell you how special that makes me feel. That the most important person that I have access to is you. And that God in his grace and his mercy and his wisdom has assigned to you supernatural beings who are making journeys back and forth to heaven. Just like in that ancient culture, it was the rich and the powerful who had access to the rich and the powerful. And Jesus is saying that a little child, metaphorically, has access to heaven. Because in the text, the, the, the little child isn't just some infant child. It isn't the child in the children's ministry. Here, in the context, the little child is you. The, the person who knows Jesus, who loves Jesus, who, who has entered into a right relationship with God because of Jesus. And so when Jesus says, take heed, it means be warned or pay attention. You know, it's one thing when your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, maybe there's somebody in your life who sticks their finger straight up in the air and then points it right at you and says, I want to warn you. And by the way, when they do that, you probably should take heed. Or maybe you don't. You're the person who says, you can't tell me what to do. But I got to tell you something. When Jesus says, I, I want to warn you. When Jesus says, please, I'm begging you, pay attention. Then we should pay attention. We're in danger. When we neglect our relationships with each other, we are in danger when we despise one another. And I want to draw your attention to that word despise. Remember, here's what Jesus is saying. We welcome each other. We don't despise each other. We welcome each other in verse 5. The Father cares for them, and angels watch over them, Wiersbe says. Jesus draws our attention to the fact that there's no such thing as an unimportant child. And Jesus, I think, is saying something even more astonishing than that. If that weren't enough, it is, there's no such thing as an unimportant believer. There's no such thing as an unimportant Christian. And again, you might be tempted to think that the passage is limited to real life children. And I'm going to suggest to you that there is a sense in which the passage applies to real life children. But almost certainly the greater application is to the real life believer. And again, if you're a believer, then the passage really is about you. The word despise means look down on, literally. It means to observe from a safe distance. It means the perception of personal or moral superiority. It means to look down on negatively. The word itself it puts a position in an art of, puts the person in a position of artificial elevation where you think that you are up 
and you're looking down on the people. And this platform gives me the privilege of being elevated. But make no mistake about it. Just because I visually can see you, the Bible warns me that I should be very, very careful. That your vantage point, if it does anything at all for you, it should give you the ability to see clearly and biblically the other person's position. That this is a person loved by God and worthwhile to God. Clearly the world sees Christians as worthless. The popular culture views the unborn as disposable. And by the way, if you vote, if you vote for the heinous, horrible bill 106 because you support physician-assisted suicide, then you don't get it. You don't understand. You don't understand the dignity of life and that Jesus is the source of life, that it's God who gives life and it's God who takes life away. But again, it makes perfect sense to me that we live in a culture that sees the unborn child as worthless and sees the elderly as worthless and that, that, that soon the right to die will become the responsibility to die. Another way we can despise each other is to ridicule one another about our physical appearance or fashion choices. This is exactly what the Corinthian believers did to Paul when they said, you know, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. His speech, contemptible. It was their way of saying, you know, Paul, you're a pretty good teacher, but you kind of look like a geek. The warning seems to mean that we can't safely, we can't safely ignore each other or hurt each other. We can't safely come to the conclusion that that person is important and that person is important and that person is important and that person is unimportant or that person is unimportant. In the 11th century, there was a duke named Robert of Burgundy and he was about to go off to war when he made all of his barons and nobles swear allegiance to his infant son. One great baron came in with his clanging armor and his great plume. And he looked at Robert and then he looked at the child and he said, the child is so little. Yes, said the Duke. He is little, but he'll grow. And grow he did. He grew up to become William the Conqueror of England. The reason why I bring this up is we can't risk offending, neglecting, ignoring anyone because you never know who they're going to grow up and become. And so in verse 11, look what it says. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Again, once again, context is king. 
The Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Conversion is the door of the kingdom in verse 3. We have to turn from our former condition and trust Jesus in humility. We can no longer employ the former position. This is much more, again, of just simply going from one direction into another. It means not just simply changing our mind. It doesn't just mean changing our opinion. It means changing our heart. And the only way that you're going to successfully change your heart is allow God to change your heart. Some scholars suggest that this verse doesn't appear in the original text. You might have a little note in your Bible that says, of verse 11, it says, For the Son of Man has come to save, or for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. There's a little asterisk, and it'll say, Oh, you know what? The new text omits this verse. What does that mean? It means that the manuscripts that were used sometimes omit it from the Gospel of Matthew, but it is in red, white, and blue ink in Luke 19.10. Undisputed. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So even if it literally doesn't appear here in the original manuscript, it as a concept appears in the New Testament and should be taken into consideration because guess what? Jesus does come to seek and to save that which is lost. Robert Gromacki in his excellent book, Salvation is Forever, lists the following reasons why human beings are lost. He says, number one, they're lost because they reject the biblical revelation of God about God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He says, why are people lost? It's because they open their eyes and they look around and they're even though God has left sufficient evidence for everyone to understand that he is there and that he cares, they choose to ignore it. He says they're lost because of disobeying their own conscience in Romans 2.14. They're lost because of their relationship to Satan in John 8.42. They're lost because of their relationship to sin in Romans 5.12. They're lost because of their relationship to God in John 3.36, 1 John 5.12, and Jude 19, which says, These be they who separate themselves sensual, that means feeling-oriented, not having the spirit. Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. In other words, these are men and women who just look around and all they see is this world and the things that are in it. But Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And my friend Jesus didn't come to seek and save that which was simply lost. He came to seek and to save the lost because he's the source of salvation. You know, it's one thing, it's one thing, it's one thing to have the desire to see people saved. You might have the desire to see your 
mother, father, brother, sister, family member, friend, husband, wife, the person sitting next to you, behind you, the person you're thinking about right now, lost, 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 and you wish you had the ability to save them. You want them to be saved. But you don't have the ability to save them. Jesus wants you to be saved. And he also has the ability to save you. He has the ability to save you if you'll just come to him. If you'll turn from your sin and you'll turn to the Savior. The writer of Hebrews in 5.9 says, In being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. In what sense? Obey him in the sense of Jesus said, Come to me. Believe in me. Trust me. Will you do that? So how do we avoid sin? The best answer is the one that's given here. To embrace salvation. You want to avoid sin? Embrace the Savior. You want to avoid sin? Then become a person who loves Jesus. Who loves what he loves and cares about what he cares about. Martin Luther said, either sin is with you lying on your shoulders, or it's lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it's lying on your back, you're lost. If it's resting on Christ, you're free, and you're saved. So, saint, where does your sin lie? So, sinner, where does your sin lie? If you place it on Jesus, safe. If it's still on your shoulders, if it's still in your heart, then what I recommend is that you place it on the only safe person who has the ability to take care of it forever. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray particularly for that person who is so burdened. Lord, I pray that you would relieve their guilt. Lord, I pray that for the person who desperately knows that they're a sinner in need of a savior, that they would just simply confess their sin. That they would ask themselves the most simple question. Do I know that I have sin? The answer is yes. Then the very simple next question is, do you want to experience forgiveness? And if the answer is yes, then why wouldn't you trust Jesus as your savior? Why wouldn't you come to him? Why wouldn't you call out to him? Why wouldn't you trust him? And so, Lord, I pray for that person who desperately needs to know you, that they've walked around with a boatload of guilt. Lord, I pray that they would place their sin squarely on you and on the cross of Calvary and experience forgiveness and hope. Lord, I pray that they would pray even a simple prayer like, 
Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I need a Savior and I know that Jesus is that Savior and he's promised that he could forgive me if I would cry out to him and trust him in humility, place my future in his hands. And Lord, I don't want to be a stumbling block. Lord, I don't want to be a cause of offense. Lord, I don't want to be the source of sickness or hurt in other people's lives. Lord, fill my heart with your love and grace and mercy. Lord, give me not just the willingness, but a deep desire that's going to result in a change of life that I don't want to hurt people. I want to help them. I don't want to lead people down the wrong path. I want to support them in going in the right direction. In Jesus' name.